Welcome to Searching for the Grey Lady, a ghost from World War I at the RNOH. Episode 2, The Despair of Miss Mary Wardell. Six months have passed since the triumphant opening of the Mary Wardell Convalescent Home for Scarlet Fever by the Prince and Princess of Wales. It is Christmas Day in the Convalescent Home. Late that night, after a long and exhausting day, Mary Wardell sits down to fire off a letter to the editor of the Morning Post. Sir, may I ask your help in the great and urgent needs of my new convalescent home for scarlet fever? Ever since the day of its opening by the Princess of Wales on July 14th, the flow of contributions which I was able by my personal efforts to raise has ceased. His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales on that occasion graciously condescended to say that the thanks of the public were due to me for my exertions in the important cause, and His Royal Highness in saying this sought to stimulate public liberality, means to carry out my project being all the thanks I needed. The thanks that I have received mean that I have been left here, with the exception of a 10-day visit to rest, to organise an institution of a far greater difficulty than ordinary, with an incomplete staff of servants, hard to obtain, new to the work, and some amongst the first tried unfitted for it. Whilst doing the work of a matron, and so saving the salary of that official, I have often been obliged to undertake the work of a household servant, for which I am physically unfit, and at the same time I have endeavoured to fulfil the almost impossible task of combining a secretary's duties with these other occupations." All these I would willingly and cheerfully do had I, at the same time, encouragement and support from others. But the result of all my sacrifice of time, strength, and such means as I can rightly dispose of without injustice to others is that I must borrow money to meet the expenses of the few months during which I have been receiving patients and must shortly close the home with a heartbroken sense of failure and wasted life and energies. With the exception of a few donations from some of my personal friends who kindly miss me from their midst, I have had nothing to cheer and encourage me to persevere in a work of acknowledged public benefit. I require £5,000 to finish the home and enable me to engage a suitable permanent matron so as to set me free to resume my former work as secretary, 
to stir up renewed interest in the work as shall suffice to carry it forward from year to year on a scale to make it practically useful and partially self-supporting. I'm writing late at night after a day of toil with a heavy heart to provide Christmas cheer and merriment for patients and household and must therefore beg your indulgence. I have the honour to be your obedient servant, Mary Wardell, the Mary Wardell Convalescent Home, Brockley Hills, Stanmore, December 25th. After so many years of hard work, gaining the approval and support of eminent medical men for her project, the enormous amount of admin and organising, the triumph of the opening by the Princess of Wales, which must have given her the expectation of success, no wonder Mary Wardell is angry and exhausted. The years that follow are dominated by her search for funds. In 1891, the Metropolitan Hospital Sunday Fund distributes a total of £43,157, 15 shillings and fourpence to 176 London institutions, including many which are still with us. Guy's Hospital, University College, Great Ormond Street, Brompton Hospital and Moorfields Eye Hospital. The Mary Wardell Convalescent Home for Scarlet Fever receives £140, 16 shillings and 8 pence, today worth approximately £18,239. At the RNOH there is a terracotta plaque on Eastgate House with her initials MW and the date 1891 commemorating the extension and improvements made possible by the award. Four years later, in 1895, a pamphlet about the home is published. Charges. The Mary Wardell Convalescent Home for Scarlet Fever, Stanmore. Patients are received at any period of convalescence after all acute symptoms have subsided. Terms. First class, three guineas a week. Second class, adults, 15 shillings a week. Children, 10 shillings a week. First class patients have a special suite of rooms. The omnibus of the home brings patients from town. For further particulars, apply to the Honourable Secretary, Miss Mary Wardell, 55 Stanley Gardens, Belsize, London, NW. Applications for admission should be made at least one week before the removal of the patient is likely to be required. The pamphlet also lists the serious challenges in financing the home and Mary Wardell writes many letters to keep up interest in the work. These are published in newspapers all over the United Kingdom. She repeats the reasons for high running costs over and over again. The Hospital, September 4th, 1897. The Expenditure at the Mary Wardell Convalescent Home. Sir, I observe in your issue of August 14th a criticism of the expenditure of this home, the cost per patient being relatively high, we think too high. 
I think the fact that this home differs greatly from any other ordinary convalescent home is not kept in mind either by your critic or by the Hospital Sunday Fund Committee in their distribution of grants. A man, horse and omnibus have to be provided and besides the cost of their maintenance at the home, each time the omnibus is sent to town for a patient, the man has to put up at some place to rest as the patient cannot go about the neighbourhood on account of risk of spread of infection, grounds for their enjoyment of outdoor exercise have to be provided and kept in good order. This involves the employment of two gardeners. As the patients cannot send their soiled linen to their friends or to a laundress, a laundry has to be maintained by the home, involving the expense of two laundry maids with fuel, soap and all laundry appliances. The distance from town or village also renders the lighting of the home more expensive and a man has to be employed to trim, clean and fill lamps for the whole building and outbuildings, to attend to the heating apparatus in winter, to the furnace for hot water supply and steam disinfecting apparatus and etc. As the patients cannot be discharged without a medical certificate to the effect they are safe to mix with the general public and a scarlet fever is followed during convalescence by many serious results, if not carefully watched, a visiting medical officer has to be employed at a salary and a trained nurse, also at a good salary, has to be maintained in the home besides a costly supply of drugs and disinfectants, surgical appliances for ears, noses, All these very heavy expenses have to be reckoned before we come to the cost of actual maintenance to the patients. I shall be grateful if you will give publicity to this statement of fact. I am exceedingly glad to see in your issue of September 11th a paper on rating of voluntary hospitals. I have for long been feeling very sore on this subject. The amount I have to pay for rates on this comparatively small voluntary institution presses very hardly on me. My home is rated at the value of £283.15, shillings, which is far too high. I have twice appealed personally to the board, besides writing a letter to each of the guardians, 39 in all, can be done to reduce this oppressive taxation of a charitable work, I shall be thankful. And if I can forward such a movement in any way, I would be willing to join in any protest or petition to Parliament or to any other influential body. So who is Mary Wardell? There are many portraits and photographs of the eminent medical men who supported her, but nowhere can I find a photograph or portrait of her. In 1889, there is a rare description of her in The Queen, the ladies' newspaper. May 11th, 1889. The Mary Wardell Convalescent Home for Scarlet Fever. It is astonishing that among the many convalescent homes which sprang up some 20 years ago in various parts of the country, there should have been none for scarlet fever convalescence. She did more than recognise the need. Delicate and fragile as she was, she set about supplying the want believing it to be the work marked out for her. Every step she took in the matter was attended with difficulties, but on she went, nothing daunted, and her courage, judgment and perseverance attracted towards her the goodwill of men great in knowledge and position. 
I believe money would come pouring in if only people would visit the home and realise what it spares us all. And still more if they could see and speak with Miss Mary Wardell, who, although worn out with fatigue of mind and body and confined to the couch, is still in the thick of the work, and her enthusiasm no whit abated. My name is Julie Anderson. I am a reader in history at the University of Kent. You know, you had to be really well connected like Mary Wardell to be able to afford to get a hospital started and then keep the support going. A lot of uh, women of Mary Wardell's time frame would have been incredibly good at organising. It was seen as part of being a good a Victorian woman, you ran a large home that you would have had a lot of servants, you would have had levels of management um, to undertake, you would have had to keep your eye on the laundry, you would organize menus. Charitable and philanthropic endeavor is what these women did. Another very famous philanthropist woman would have been Florence Nightingale. So they have a real concentration on health and more specifically probably public health, so the wider health of the community. Because looking after people was very much, uh, for example, a Victorian way of understanding what women were good at. They were sympathetic, they were caring. It was this kind of top-down way of seeing health. And a lot of these women are responsible for that. They also had a huge standing in the community. And so therefore, you know, they could encourage people to to give money through letter writing and um, quite interesting ways of, of trying to get money. British Medical Journal Advertiser, July the 12th, 1884. The home will be open for inspection every day from July the 15th to July the 19th, inclusive, between the hours of 3 to 7. Admission, one shilling. A sale of work will be held at the home towards the expenses of furnishings, for which funds are urgently needed. June the 26th, 1897. The nursing record. During the 12 years of the working existence of this home, over 2,500 convalescents of this infectious disease have been admitted. Funds are greatly needed to pay off a debt of £600 and to build a smoking room for patients unable to go out in wet and cold weather. I don't think the work of Mary Wardell trying to get donations should be underestimated because there was really nothing else available because there is no state apparatus. Where they would get money as well as um, you know, from the upper class was, was also, again, the, the new industrial class who wanted to be part of philanthropic giving. It's considered very much a, a moral duty. So Mary Wardell would have also considered it a moral duty that she, who had more than other people, would use her time to philanthropically support those who are less well off. I think it's something that's that's really important to note that these women worked so hard and Mary Wardell would have done this all the time trying to get money to, to support what, what was really a good idea of a hospital to try and help people get over um, 
serious diseases. The Journal of Public Health, October the 1st, 1891. There are few convalescents more to be pitied or in a worse plight than those recovering from scarlet fever. For the most part, they are individuals in fairly good health and, therefore, active both in mind and body. But owing to the infection, which still clings around them, they are prevented from mixing with their fellow creatures. The scarlet fever convalescent is like a leper, shunned by the public, but in few cases does he, like many lepers, possess a sort of quarantine island on which he may, during his exile, consort with his brothers in desquamation. As a rule, the unfortunate victim, if treated at his own home, is at once banished to the top floor and all communication with the outer world cut off. He has, if he does what is right, to remain a prisoner under these conditions until all peeling has ceased. It is often eight, or in some cases ten weeks, before he can once more emerge from his seclusion. I am venturing to offer to the readers of Public Health a short account of the Mary Wardell Convalescent Home, at which I am now an inmate. It is entirely owing to the energy of this lady that the home exists, and she deserves all the pecuniary and moral support which can be given her. On July the 15th, 1899, the Hospital magazine features a chat with Miss Mary Wardell in the Hospital Nursing Mirror supplement titled Nursing Scarlet Fever Convalescence. The heights of Broccoli, on which the Mary Wardell Convalescent Home for Scarlet Fever is situated, are easily accessible from the pretty station at Stanmore. When I went to see the founder for a chat about the home which she first thought of 20 years ago, the driver, whom I asked to put me out at Miss Wardell's private residence, deposited me in a charming shady spot known as Wood Lane, opposite a gate with the sign Sullion Cay on the post. Not that Miss Wardell does not live on the spot. Her private residence is, in fact, part of the same block of buildings as the institution, though quite a distinct house. And as I approached the entrance, I caught a glimpse of some happy-looking little convalescents in the adjoining home. You might tell me, please, Miss Wardell, how it was that you came to think of starting the convalescent home for Scarlet Fever? When I was working among the poor in London and had a Bible woman, I tried to send two children who had recovered from scarlet fever to a convalescent home, but nobody would receive them. Then my Bible woman had a mild attack and I could not get her taken in anywhere afterwards. Eventually, when I had discussed the matter with a few ladies, I broached it to several eminent members of the medical profession, and one of them, in encouraging me to start a home myself, said, You will succeed, and you will be one of the great benefactors of the age. I could not refuse after that. My first idea was to found a charitable institution only. But you modified your project. Yes, I was advised that it would be more likely to succeed if I had paying patients, some of them belonging to the working classes and paying a portion of the cost of the institution and others paying a moderate fee. 
The next step of importance was a meeting at the mansion house on behalf of the Mary Wardell home, and five years later, on July 14, 1884, this building was opened by the Princess of Wales, the patroness. Was there any house on the spot where you selected the site? One partly built. It was the beautiful and breezy situation that attracted me. This wing, which I occupy, I erected at my own expense, and I intend it to be the male patient's department when I die. So uh, what is your present financial position? There is a debt on the home, and I'm only just now endeavouring to raise £2,000. So far, in two years, I've only got £700 towards the amount. Since that appeal was made, the question of drainage has arisen. When the home was built, no public sewer was within reach of the property, and it was found necessary to provide a special system of subsoil irrigation for the disposal of the drainage. Now the District Council has constructed a public sewer and require us to lay down a completely new drainage system to communicate with the main drain. This means we want another £1,000. So that is to say £3,000 in all would free you from all liabilities and put the place on a sound financial footing? Exactly. I should then be able to save the payment of interest on money advanced by the bank. And what do you consider the yearly cost of the home? About £2,000. The patients pay about £1,000 and our subscriptions and donations amount to about £600. Another 300 to 400 would ensure both ends meeting. I should like to see the home put on a sound footing before I leave. Do you remember how many patients you've had since it opened? Upwards of 3,150. I often have applications for male patients in the second-class ward and it cuts me to the heart to have to refuse to admit them. So how do you divide the home? The first floor is reserved for bedrooms first class and the second floor for second-class patients, the ground floor containing the sitting room. The home was built to accommodate 40 inmates, but we've had as many as 47. To show you how the number varies, I may mention that on one occasion we only had one patient and the very next week I had so many applications I could not entertain them all. So I suppose you have to keep a large staff. Yes, all the time. In addition to the matron, assistant matron and sister, there's a cook, kitchen maid, parlour maid, two housemaids and a scullery maid. The matron is a lady housekeeper and the assistant makes the linen and gives out the stores, etc. The sister, who takes the head of the second-class table, is, of course, a trained nurse. We also have a sort of probationer who attends to the little children and waits upon them. Do you often have sad cases of little children? Frequently. One little boy who used to lie by the fire on a pillow was so emaciated at first that it was delightful to see him run after a time. He was the son of a dock labourer and I did not like sending him home. 
we had a little girl from Shadwell who had hip disease, and she cried when she had to go. Now to deal with the treatment, Miss Wardell. How do you begin? We send the omnibus for the patient. It is a private omnibus, and patients travelling here by any other conveyance without special permission are refused admittance. Patients are admitted only on the subsidence of acute symptoms of scarlet fever. We frequently put the omnibus on the rail. I have sent as far as Staffordshire. And what happens to the patient on arrival? The first class go to their room. The treatment depends upon the kind of case. The morning after arrival, a patient has breakfast in bed. Then the sister makes a proper examination and If there are traces of albuminuria, the patient is kept in bed or on a milk diet until the doctor comes. Each case is carefully watched. Sometimes we have patients who do not obey the rules. There was a gentleman who would go outdoors, caught a chill and set up albuminuria with the result that he never got rid of it. Any tendency to rheumatism is at once observed and the moment patients show signs of tonsillitis, they are put apart. How often does the doctor attend? Twice a week, when he sees any of the patients. He also comes whenever he is wanted, but in such cases extra is charged. No patient is allowed to leave the home without the doctor's certificate. Do you often get cases that want much watching? No, only now and then. The mild cases of fever are long, peeling and more prone to develop rheumatism than the cases that have been acute. What about diet? The first-class patients have anything they require, as in an ordinary home. The second-class have porridge, etc. Breakfast at half-past eight, milk and biscuits at eleven, dinner at one, tea at five and supper at eight. Children over twelve sit up to supper. A special diet is provided in cases of illness. Does the sister stay long at the home? Usually not more than a year or two. The sisters are very happy and like their work, but they have to give up their surgical practice. And, as one of them said to me, if I stay here, I lose it all after having paid for my knowledge. It is one of my great troubles that a sister seldom remains for more than two years. A nurse came from the Nightingale home as a patient and afterwards stayed here as sister for two and a half years. I may say there is a great deal of important work in testing and watching symptoms, dispensing and disinfecting. And then, having strolled around the lovely grounds with Miss Wardell and seen the laundries and disinfecting apparatus, as well as the two oaks presented respectively, by Prince Christian in 1887 and the Queen in 1897, I left the pleasant home without a doctor's certificate. So in this episode, we met Miss Mary Wardell, sitting at her desk late at night on Christmas Day in 1884, exhausted and angry and determined to fight for her convalescent home.
could Mary Wardell ever have imagined that we would be thinking of her 136 years later, on December the 22nd, 2020? Could she imagine we would be recording this podcast on Brockley Hill, which she chose in 1883 for its breezy and beautiful situation? I'm Lucy Davies, and I am the Chief Operating Officer at Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital in 2020. I'm reflecting on patterns in history, because what became the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital was originally established by Mary Wardell for patients with scarlet fever. And now, in 2020, we turned one of our newest wards into a respiratory ward for COVID patients. Twenty twenty at RNOH has been difficult and exhausting, but also full of positive transformation, teamwork, new discoveries, and love and care for our patients and for one another. We discovered new strengths and shared more of ourselves. We formed bonds in truly difficult times. As we look forward to the future, we do so in the certain knowledge of challenging times ahead but also with so much hope as we prepare to vaccinate both our patients and one another and to rediscover the closeness that we have all missed so much in this difficult year 2020. In the bleak midwinter of 2020, we continue to give our hearts. Episode 2, The Despair of Miss Mary Wardell, is written and directed by Nicola Lane. The narrator is Keith Reeve, Radio Broccoli's award-winning broadcaster. The readers, in order of performance, are Nicola Lane, Christine Bowes, Artie Shah, Monica Richardson and Sandra Staffiero. Peg Leg Productions wants to thank historian Julie Anderson for generously sharing her knowledge on the podcast. We would also like to thank Lucy Davis for her reflections on the challenges faced by the RNOH in 2020. The sound design is by Louis Morand. The podcast is funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and is created in collaboration with Radio Broccoli. For more information about Searching for the Grey Lady, a ghost from World War I at the RNOH, please go to www.peglegproductions.org.